Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Uh, Melina Marquetta, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Uh, this is almost a dream come true for me. <laughs> it really you. is meeting you. And I can't believe we haven't met. Oh, it's just been 27 years in the making, but <laughs> here you are. I um, one of I read Looking for Alla Brandy um, in manuscript, I think, back then. So there, was that 27 years ago? Yes. Do you know, I still remember and I've got goosebumps now, I still remember almost every word in that book because I've read it several times. But for me, it was the first time that people in a book were like me. Hmm. I I, I say this quite often, um, that I was worried that it wouldn't work because it was about people like me. (laughs) So it's really interesting how small you think the world of a book is and then how amazingly big it ends up being Um, but you know it's just always such a wonderful reaction and even at the moment where my daughter is at school in a very Italian area the amount of times that a mother comes up and says that was my life or they've just found out after two and a half years of being there it's like oh my god that was my life and um, it's just always such a wonderful reaction. Because but in, during that time there wasn't, in terms of Australian fiction, there wasn't a lot. And, you know, it was almost YA, but it was definitely a crossover mm. book. I think as many adults oh, as definitely. children read it. Um, but there wasn't really a lot of fiction around that represented migrants living in Sydney. Well, I don't remember reading anything as a, um, as a teenager that reflected that. And I say this often that... I was such an avid reader. I didn't have a particular type. I just read anything. And I loved those worlds, but I never, ever, ever, ever saw myself on those pages. And I think it's almost when that happens, and it says a lot about marginalised people, because I would not consider myself marginalised, but it says a lot about how they're feeling when they don't see themselves represented, because I remember how it felt there's a sense of inferiority, a lot of things. And also when you're writing something like that, especially back then, you think, well, I don't know why I'm writing it because no one's going to really read it. Um, so I, I feel as if I was writing it for a small audience and that audience could have just been people who I would hand it around to, you know. Um, but, yeah, it was just... It still sells. It is still relevant even now. Um, and I know that because I speak to, apart from adults have grown up with it but it it shocks me that kids are relating to it and not not because of the you know because what it's about but there's absolutely no social media in it um and so for me it really dispels that myth that you have to hand to kids what they're experiencing in the world um at the moment because what they're experiencing that's the same as back then was identity, community, all of those things, but you don't have to tick the boxes of um, keeping up with what's in fashion, whether it's social media. No one, in a way, the kids don't notice it. 
there's no social media in. And when they don't notice it, then you've done, you know, the right um Okay, Melina, I am going to introduce you because there might be one or two people in the country that have never heard (laughs) of you. Yeah, there are quite a few, (laughs) I have to say. Melina Marchetta is the author of nine best-selling novels for young people and adults, including the multi-award-winning and much-loved Looking for Alibrandi, which is what we were just talking about, and the 2009 Michael L. Prince Award winner uh, on the Jellicoe Road. In 2011, her novel The Piper's Son was longlisted for the Mars Franklin Award and shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Award. Melina is one of Australia's most cherished authors and the queen of Australian coming-of-age stories. I like that. Mm. <laughs> her new book, The Place on Dalhousie, is that am I pronouncing that properly? Yes. Yeah. It's a compelling and poignant family saga featuring Jimmy Hallier, a character from several of Melina's books, and a new uh, character, the fascinating Rosie Gennaro. Um, there is so much I want to talk to you about. Um, so tell me, 27 years ago uh, was the publication of Looking for Alibrandi. Uh, talk to me about growing up as a migrant in Sydney. Um, well, I was the child of um, both um, a first-generation Italian and a second-generation Italian. So my mother was born in North Queensland. So I'm a product of pre-World War to migration and post. Um, and my mother's, my parents met in North Queensland, but they came down to Sydney um, with my, all of my father's family. We grew up in, you know, that typical close-knit um, we saw our cousins and our, you know, extended family every Sunday for lunch. There would have been, with no exaggeration, probably 30 of us. And next door was my great aunt and all of her family. So that's, that was our normal. Um, I always say to people, I've got a really small immediate family. There are only 11 of us. And people say, that's not small, but it's small for us. Um, and, you know, we all grew up five, living five minutes away from each other and strangely now we've all ended up all about five minutes away from each other and um, it was just, it, it, my whole life did revolve around family and school and um, my mother is still a very strong Catholic so just that Catholic upbringing um, that is reflected in, in, in those earlier books um, and you know, it was a strict household. Do you have siblings? Um, I have. T- I'm in the middle of um, two girls, so there's three of us. We're very, very close. Love um, sisters. Yeah, we're very volatile, but incredibly close. And um, I just think that that's. I, I said the other night at my book launch, and I say it all the time that if I hadn't been born into that family, I would have found my sisters in the world. And, you know, we always muck around and say, oh, we would have been kicked out of something together. Um, we're, we're three very different people. But um, Close I just... Close in age? Well, um, I'm being in the middle, my older sister's probably about two years older than me oh, and my so younger close. sister's about three years um, younger than me. Um, but they, growing up, they were into the same things. They were very much into, you know, going out and socialising and I wasn't. So they would go out quite often together. So there was no, there was no favourite here or there and um, we weren't kind of governed by how close we were in age. It was basically our interests um, and that's still the case now. And, they um, still like going out. <laughs> oh, they, no, we, we actually, we have a different version of going out. Yes. But, um, but just really interesting people. I always say, and, 
it's a hard, I mean, I don't think that they've ever taken it in any other way, but they're the most accomplished people. They're, they're two women who can do anything. And I'm not saying that I'm not, but I can do a few things well. They can do everything well. And I sometimes wonder what happened to them when this book came out where all of a sudden the attention was just on one person. Like people would come up to us at parties and say to them, oh, your sister's so talented. And, you know, for me, I thought, no, these are the most talented people I know. And they're still two of the most interesting people I know. Um, so it was just that. And same with our parents. We... We're a very close-knit family and um, that's one thing I'm very grateful now, especially that my parents are, are getting older and there's that reversal of roles. Um, but I always say to my, um, you know, even to them but also to friends, they were such great parents but we're pretty good daughters, you know, um, especially in their old age. So I think that anything that we squabble about is forgivable because I think we're very good people to each other. Mm. So tell me about how you got to writing Looking for Alibrandi. I mean, how does that happen and how oh, old were you when you um, wrote it? Is, I just think of that crazy girl um, in that bedroom thinking she was yeah, – and no one no one mocked it or anything, but one of the um, – I have to think of things in, in order because it's such a long time ago and I never thought it would be published. So I wish I had recorded everything that happened. But I was an avid reader and, as I said before, I wanted to see myself on the pages. So I think it came from um, a very egocentric, I suppose, desire. And so I remember writing um, a story and I, I left school when I was 15 and I went to business college because my mother said, you're just too young. And I was a very young 15-year-old and she didn't want me in the workforce at 15. So I went to um, I went to a Catholic business college, you know, still in I uniform. Um, my hands were covered. Um, when we were typing, our hands were covered with a cloth so we wouldn't look at the keys. Best thing that ever happened to me. And up till that stage, if I wrote anything, I could never read it back because my handwriting was really bad and still is. So um, that's when I started writing this story about a girl called Genevieve Tyson and I used to hand it to the girl next to me in the typing lines and she'd say, it's amazing, give me more. It wasn't amazing, but I think she was the same as me in the sense of she loved reading. She wasn't, a, the character wasn't an Italian girl. And that story just didn't work because she lived in Kayama. I had never been to Kayama in my entire life. Um, I remember I used to ring up the um, the um, what are those holiday places and get all the pamphlets. I felt as if at one stage I knew every street in Kayama. Never went there um, until probably ten and years later. And why Kayama? I think I you always think it's more exotic to have something far away, you know, by the beach. These girls used to hang out by the beach. The one thing it has in common with what I ended up writing is that this girl was um, living with her mum and she meets her dad for the first time. Um, and of course, you know, having friends and going through yeah. HSC. So I was always told, my sisters and I grew up between two worlds. We didn't feel um, that we were Italian because um, we had an English speaking parent. Um, so the Italian girls at school would sit around talking Italian and you were an outsider. And with the Aussie kids, um, you were an outsider because you weren't allowed to go out like they were. Um, so I'm surprised I found myself a group and they are still very close to me today. And one of them I dedicated um, the book to, um, you know, my best friend Brenda. And at that stage, people would say to me, if you go to Italy, it'll all make sense to you. You will get off that plane and you will know in your soul that, you know, you are home. And so when I was 19 years old, I went to Italy with my sister and that did not happen. 
But what did happen was we sat around with great aunts, you know, that wonderful dialogue that happens around a table, food, the whole thing. And it was just um, it was amazing hearing stories of when my father and his family left in the 50s. They were hyster- they were crying, still telling me this story mm. decades later. It's a big and, thing to oh, do, I just, to leave your family. I know. I, and I think of all those stories, like my maternal grandmother, she left in the 30s when she was in, you know, in her, I'd say, around 20. She never saw her family ever again. Mm. Up till the last... You know, she died in her um, 90s. She was ringing her sister. Um, but, you know, it, that, there wasn't Skype back then, you know, even. And they didn't you know, have the means. Um, and I just think that that, having come from such a close-knit family, I, it just, it, it just, I couldn't get it out of my head. Yeah. And I came home and I said to my mum, I'm, I'm going to write a novel. I thought instead of Genevieve Tyson, you know, by the beach, I'm in going Kiyama. to. Uh, in Kiyama, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to write a novel and I thought I'm going to interview my grandfather who was, you know, interned during the war, um, who had all these interesting stories. We never listened to them. We were always like, oh, my God, here he goes again. And he lived in North Queensland. I said to my mum, when you go up there, tell him I really need to talk to him. And she came home from that trip and said, he's got Alzheimer's and it's all gone. So I had to then rely on my grandmother and that's why it became a, gen- a story of three generations of women and not someone finding out about her family through her grandfather. So that's the interesting way of a book can end up going in a direction. And sadly, all those stories, I'm so fascinated with the whole being interned, they're, they're gone, you know, and that makes me think, listen to your grandparents when they're telling you stories. Oh, I've got a couple of questions. Why did you leave school at 15? I, I didn't have confidence as... Um, as a student, I, I don't think I was quite interested. Um, you but weren't engaged enough. I wasn't engaged enough, but, you know, I had always started, I was a late speaker, believe it or not, and so by the time I started school, I had just, you know, started speaking really, whereas my sisters, they already knew how to speak Italian. That's why my Italian's really poor because you pretty much learn that second language or that first language in a way before you start school and so my first language you know came when I was about four Um, so I always felt as if I was on the back foot Um, didn't you know learn to read until you know I was in first grade my you know first grade teacher uh, my mum came up wanting to know because she had these two brilliant um, children and um, that's why where my mother just spent every afternoon for the next you know six years at that school helping her teach kids to read because of me Um, So I think I just all – I had a lack of confidence. And my view now, and it's interesting that I went back to – or went to university to be a teacher, was that if I had done the year 11 and 12, I think I would have failed. And that failure, I think, would have set me back. So um, my parents weren't happy with that decision of leaving at 15, um, but they let it happen. And I just felt that I, I wouldn't say I educated myself, but I remember being an avid reader of non-fiction um, at that time and in a way I prepared myself for university when I was 25. So I worked for about nine years before I went to university. Okay, so you, you're starting to write now and you're starting to write about what you know. Mm-hmm. So tell me how that came together. I think it was, um, and it was about writing what I knew, but not necessarily writing about myself. So I always say I wrote about my world and the thing that also happened around that time, my friends and both my sisters, 
they had to leave our school only went up to year 10 and so they had to go to a year 11 and 12 school and they always spoke about being outsiders and I think that that really helped with that idea that Josie Alabrandi was a scholarship student and an outsider and the one thing I did know was if I said this if if Josie went to school where I went to school she would have been running the school Mm -hmm. so I had to send her to a part of the city that I was you know, for me, the eastern suburbs, oh, my God, only rich people live mm-hmm. there. And, you know, all the stereotypes in your mm-hmm. head. So I thought And only Aussie girls live there. Yeah, and I just thought I'm going to send her over there um, to a world where she's out of her, um, I suppose, her um, comfort zones and so was I. And, um, and it was slowly doing things like that and, you know, just making sh- – like I knew that she was going to come from a single-parent family, that her grandmother was going to have – a great influence on their lives. So um, Katia, the grandmother, was based on both my grandmothers. My Katia in her younger age was my maternal grandmother and older age was my paternal, who was really a matriarch. So it was just all of the things that, you know, I had experienced tomato day. Someone sent me a photo um, on Sunday. They were having this tomato day. And it was just amazing. Like just I thought, oh, my God, you know, it's such a lost art in a way. But it was all the things that only we felt we had experienced because you didn't talk about it at school. You never spoke about it at no. school because it would have made you an outsider. You were um, always trying to fit in. I was the same. Always, 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 you know, and lying all the time. Like the amount of times that I'd say, oh, we've got a wedding, when we didn't because it just meant we weren't allowed to go out, you know. Mm. So it was kind of living another life when you went to school. Mm. Okay, so you've got this book, you finished it. How old were you when you finished it? So first draft, so I started writing it and it was double the size it is now and um, because it was in both first person and third person, it went three years after she left school and um, I, I remember I was working in the bank at the time and you know, the yellow pages or, you know, I'd look up publishers and I'd ring up and say, you know, I learned to use That's the language. That's very brave. I know. I just thought, um, in a way it was brave, in a way it wasn't because you didn't have to give your name. But I remember the line I would use is, what are the prerequisites of getting a book published? <laughs> and I was told the three three things every single time. One was that it had to have a synopsis, it had to be double-spaced, typed out, um, and the third was um, – Every year, you know, they get 2,000 um, manuscripts sent to them and only one or two unsolicited ones. Um, and I thought, oh, my goodness, you know. Yeah. Um, but there was something in me that thought, no, there's something here. And um, it just constantly got rejected. But every, not every time, but maybe every second time it got rejected, there was always a scribbled note or something saying, you've got a really strong voice, almost don't give up. So I don't know whether you imagine there's magic ink and you read something in those rejection letters, but I read that there was something there that people were responding to. Another time I rang up someone who had um, rejected me just wanting a bit more information and what I found out in that company was that more than one person had read it. And I thought, that means something. So it was those little things that gave me the I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people sing you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Confidence to keep on writing it. And there I was, you know, in my parents' home, in, in my bedroom. Um, you know, back in the day of computers just being um, on the market, I remember once losing at least seven chapters. And of course, you see that as a sign of, well, those seven chapters weren't good enough. And yeah. um, But it, it was pretty difficult. Um, but my my mum and dad, my whole family, but I remember my mother, we weren't the type to say, oh, good on you. That's fantastic that you're writing a novel because no one back there, um, you know, in our area was writing a novel. But I remember my mother came home one day and she was she worked at a school as a secretary and she said they were throwing this paper out do you want it for your writing and for me that was saying i'm yes. supporting what you're doing yes absolutely and that that was just one of those moments of i'm not this freak in in you know my parents house doing this you know it it means something and it will go someplace so um so were you after each rejection were you editing or rewriting were you i was and I want to know, did you back then, because it's not like you were emailing it, right? No. Yeah. So were you printing it out every time? I was printing out just one copy. Um, I remember I'd put it, um, you know, in the big yeah. bag. I remember at one stage, um, you know, putting it, I was just so young and <laughs> when I think of some of the, but I remember putting it in the post box at, um, at Five Dock because I was staying with my um, grandmother and um, I remember saying a prayer, you know, it was just that kind of, oh, my goodness. And then, of course, if you got home um, from work and you saw a package out the front, because they used to return the um, manuscript if it was rejected, then you just knew. And sometimes that package would sit on my bed for, you know, a couple of weeks before I opened it because I knew what was inside. And then I would go, okay, if there was anything at all, the information not usually given to me, I would take that on board, but I would go into it again. But most of the editing um, took place, um, obviously, with Penguin, Julie Watts. Um, Julie Watts wrote me a letter that I still have and it almost predicted what has happened. Okay, tell me. We need to know that story. So at what point did you come home and there was an envelope and not a package? There wasn't. Um, I was by that stage, so this was a couple of years in the making, so I think I was about 24 and I was still working, so I was working in a travel company in the city and I remember I had sent it off to Penguin because I thought, I don't want it in my house. I don't want it in my drawer because if it's in my drawer, I'll keep on working on it. And really, you know, when you're sometimes self-editing yourself after ages and ages, you know that term of, you know, it's like moving the broccoli around in your plate. It's The broccoli is still there at the end. So, you know, I thought I want it out of the house and I sent it to Penguin as a last resort. And I remember I was at work and I rang up and I said, I just wanted to know when my manuscript would be sent back. What a defeatist <laughs> attitude because it was a couple of months. And someone, you know, they said, 
they put me on hold and they came back and they said, look, we're seriously considering it, so can you not send it out to anyone else? And I just remember sitting there. I hadn't told anyone at work that I was writing a novel and sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness. And um, I eventually received a very long letter from Julie Watts telling me how much work I had to do, but she made a prediction, something along the lines of, we feel that if you're willing to work on this, this could be a novel that people will read in years to come. It was, as I said, it was like predicting. And I remember thinking what a strange thing to say of if you're willing to do the work. I thought, oh, who's not willing to do the work? But yeah. I didn't realise, A, it's so much work. But there are people out there that who don't want to be edited. So I just thought, of course I'm willing to um, do the work. And I found that difficult because, as I said, it was double the size it is now. I had to choose one voice. They said to me, choose, is it going to be third person or first person? First person, I think, was in her diary. I chose first person. And then I realised that I didn't want it in diary mode where she is the audience. I wanted the audience to be out there. Yeah. So it was making decisions like that. It was getting rid of the three years. It wasn't a big part, that last part, but some people said really interesting things in in those years that I had to put in the mouth of characters, you know, in the first part of the story. And really from when um, that from when I got that first phone call to when it came out was about three years of editing. So it's so the longest. Three years. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really a long time. And I remember it was called The Emancipation of Ella Brundy. Um, I remember the first cover that I saw, which was a photocopy because, you know, there yeah. wasn't, um, you weren't getting s- sent images on the e- in email. It said, The Emancipation of Ella Brundy by CMA Marketer because they're my initials. And I thought that was so dramatic and, um, you know, I was told a couple of months beforehand we're going to have to change the um, title. No one knows what emancipation means um, or no one will know. And um, and also, you know, what's wrong with Melina Marquetta? And I just thought, oh my God, people will know. <laughs> know it's you. me who wrote it, you know. So it was just, it was such an exciting time, but it was an interesting time because I remember thinking, if I'm smart enough to write a novel um, that will be published, then I'm smart enough to go to university and be a teacher. And that's that's what I did. So I did it kind of the other way around to what a lot of people do. Was the book published by the time you got to university? Um, No, I was in my second year of university. I distinctly remember that time. Um, I failed my first um, English essay. It was on King Lear. I still believe I failed it because the um, lecturer was probably looking for some brilliance because when I read it now, I think that's a pretty good essay. Um, But I remember being more upset about failing that essay and crying my head off than the fact that my book came out that um, that week. And um, uh, King Lee, isn't he the man more sinned against uh, than sinning? Is that what it is? Um, I want to, um, so you were working at Target yes. um, in Leichhardt and I had, I must have read it during that time or just shortly before it came out because I was working in a bookstore, um, in a bookshop and I remember seeing you from a distance in Target. <laughs> oh, my God. That is so funny. <laughs> that is Melina Marquetta. I was so in awe. And I used to go in sometimes to try and just cite <laughs> you. You should have just come up and spoke to me. You know, I was saying you're that, a published um, author. I know, but I was working part-time at Target, you know, with a lot of um, – I was a uni student, but I was, you know, working with a lot of year 12 
um, students and they would say to their – they came to my first book launch and they'd say to their friends, yeah, she works with me at um, Target and people would say, don't be ridiculous as if she works at Target. But I think every um, – well, every – Italian girl I knew had you know two or three jobs back then so um and we all had to I know it was just and it became your world and that's the thing you know people ask me about why I write about specific you know little worlds they're the they're the worlds that are full of passion I mean the stories you'd find out from those girls and um just about their lives and you know while you're working alongside them um, that's what fascinates me a lot more than, you know, what's happening out there because, you know, sadly or um, fantastically, those stories are kind of the best you'll ever hear yeah. with regards to human emotions and, and things like that. So it was almost instantly successful, yes. uh, which is a phenomena <laughs> in anyone's terms. And how did you deal with that? Sort of badly in a way. Um, I was just – I was very um, – I was very overwhelmed by it. I was so grateful 11 years later when Francesca came out to be able to enjoy it because I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. I was the type who did not deal well with attention. Um, People would say, I love your book, and I would ignore them. Um, Or if they even said, you know, your book's fantastic, I'd almost say, no, it's not. I just did not know. I remember being um, at a party at university. It was someone's 21st. And um, and she ended up being one of my close friends. And her mother stopped me. Her mother hadn't met me before. And her mother, who once again I still know now, stopped me and she said, you've got to learn to take um, a compliment. If yes. someone says to you, you know, that they love your book or that you're, you just say thank you, you know. And it was such a um, – it was such an interesting, I suppose, um, lesson because – I did learn to say thank you. I didn't have to say, oh, but, you know, there are parts in it that answer. I just had to say one word. And I found that really confronting. I found, you know, I remember being in front of an audience. So the book came out in October and in January when there used to be the Sydney Festival and the Sydney Writers Festival. I remember being at the State um, um, Library and speaking about it and I remember reading out a piece and people were laughing and I, I remember stopping and looking up and I just didn't realise that people were laughing because the work was funny. I didn't know why they were laughing. You and thought I remember, they were laughing at you? Well, I didn't know what they were laughing at but it made me stop and think, how strange, what's going on here? And so that was just such a new experience and I remember my mum was in the audience and she said to me, um, because I must have looked confident and I was talking. She said, I just didn't know who you were up there. Um, it was almost like this different persona than this wallflower. And so in my life I think I've been forced to be on a stage where the wallflower really, I mean, she still exists, but I was forced, you know, to have to really get up there and, and, and speak in front of the world. And I just found that really difficult. I found talking about my life difficult um, and, of course, a novel like that, people want to talk about your life. And then there'd be the analysis where, you know, family members who were so proud of the work but they didn't like the way that a journalist might interpret who we are because, you know, people are going yeah. to use stereotypes. So there was a lot of that going on but mostly pride. I mean, it was such yeah. an amazing time. Um, but as I said, I'm glad that I've got to enjoy the experience because at the first time was very frightening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
to follow a book like that? Was it 11 years? Why did it take 11 years? I mean, I can imagine that it would be hard to yes. go back and try that again. I mean, I don't know how you approach it. Do um, you start afresh? Do you, oh. as a writer, how do you do that? And also, you would learn so much. You would I study. Know. Well, there's 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 a lesson. Um, I'm not saying for one moment that leaving school at year ten meant that I left school knowing nothing. That's yeah. that's a ridiculous thing to say, and especially as a teacher or as an ex-teacher, that's ridiculous. But I hadn't really learned the classics, so I wrote that novel with such a fresh. Um, immature voice, um, I mean, in a way it resonated. Um, and then I went to university and I was educated and I couldn't write. And I just think that that says a lot about what education can do. It's because you're, you, you're comparing yourself with the world. You're thinking, well, I'm not good enough. No, I can't write um, like Tim Winter. I know. I so it is write. that. Yeah. yeah. You just think, oh my God, I cannot do that. And I was asked constantly, when is there going to be a sequel? Um, that would have been tough. And it, it was because I remember two things. I remember thinking, but I don't know what I did in the first place. I just remember that it was, apart from the editing experience, I just remember it did come from the heart. It's, it's not as if a muse kind of visited me and it just appeared, but it did come from the heart and I don't remember what I did. And I remember people would say, oh, gosh, I just love the juxtaposition. I remember thinking, oh. I don't even know what that word means, yeah. you know. Um, so for me, it was how am I supposed to do something again if I don't even know how I did it in the first place? Do you, and this is something I was thinking about, did you, when you write it, think that you're going to be a writer and that you would write many more books or did you just write it? I just wrote it and I thought the only book I'll ever write is this book and the only yes. book I want to write is this book. It's like yes. I want to write about our experience to a certain degree and that's it. Yeah. And then to be surprised that there is this reaction and people want you to keep on writing about it. And um, I remember in between I was teaching um, and I was also writing the film script so the film happened in between that Which time. Which I loved as um, well. It was, yeah. I just think that it was such a great adaptation. I mean, I It was. But it, it was, was really It was about the, um, the group, um, Robin Kershaw and Kate Woods and, and myself. And that film, writing film taught me a lot and I think that writing a film script is the hardest thing um, for me to do. Writing a novel is so indulgent. Um, but I put film in the same category as a picture book and even as a writing for small children. Less is more, but you really have to pack a punch, um, you know, in such a tight way, and I don't think everyone can do that. So the th I, I learned things from writing um, a film script about dialogue, for example, you know, three reasons um, you know, push it forward, push the plot forward, um, tell us, you know, the dialogue has to tell us something about the relationship, tell us something about the character. And I think I really stored up this information. But I also remember reading a book and it was it was a lovely book, but I remember reading it and thinking I could do that um, and, you know, maybe better. And I, you know, Francesca came at a really tough, tough time um, it's no surprise that a book about depression I started writing a month after September 11. It was such a depressing time in the world. I remember um, just I think I was depressed, but I think I was just going through a bit of a downhill spiral. Um, and out of such a terrible um, time, I, I think one of the most 
my favourite of my novels was was born. And yeah. I remember thinking, I can do this. And I wrote, I think, three chapters. I was a year coordinator at, time, at the time in a boys' school and that story is about girls in a boys' world. And I remember sending, um, by this stage there was technology in the world, yes, there was emailing. emailing, and I sent these three chapters to Laura Harris who hadn't published um, Alla Brundy but I had met at Penguin and I loved and we kept in contact. And I also sent it to an agent who had once handed me a card and because I didn't have an agent for Alla Brundy and um, the film and the novel, I would advise anyone out there, if you're um, involved in film, do not go into it without an agent. Um, so I just thought, okay, I'm going to send it off to them. I remember it was before recess and I came back and they had both read it already and I remember the agent said, you write like a dream, we're interested. So it was just I knew I was on my way. Um, but there was something about it not working and I, I I couldn't understand what it was and then I started again and I changed the tense. Okay. I changed the tense and I couldn't stop talking. I couldn't stop writing and that to me is also a lesson for myself. So I think I've learned, I think, um, just little lessons for myself. Of course. So my, my own editing now is pretty comprehensive before I send it to my um, editor. We're ru we've run out of time. Okay. Um, you are so incredibly interesting. I oh, think we you. might get you back <laughs> if, you, if you'd be kind enough to come back to us. Um, we are to we well we had you in for the new book. We have you in for the new book, The Place on Dalhousie. Um, it's out now. Tell us a little bit about this and where this came from. Um, this is returning to the world. Um, you could say it's returning to the world of Saving Francesca, but it's returning to the inner west. It's returning to community. Um, yes. And, yeah. I, I mean, I live a, a suburb away and it's about a house um, that was rebuilt by, um, and I would call him a migrant because he came out in the 90s. Usually uh, migr um, Italian migrants came out in the 50s. He comes out in the 90s with a very, very young family. He buys this rundown house. He's not a builder and he spends 20 years rebuilding it. Um, and it's not about him, but it's about that house. And two women who believe they, um, they have a claim to that house and they refuse to move out. Rosie, his daughter lives upstairs and Martha, his second wife lives downstairs. And it's about the community that comes into and around those two women. Um, and it, it is about community. It's about the it inner is. West and it's about everything I love about community. And it's community. about, you know, writing about what you know. Exactly. And, yeah. and writing about women my age because, yeah. um, you know, years ago migrant children weren't on the pages of books and now um, women of my age aren't on the pages of books or in stories and I just think, we are so much more interesting um, than I was when I was younger and I think I, I'm not ready to disappear from, from you know, literature. So I suppose, once again, it's an egocentric way of making sure well, people don't Well, I don't, don't want forget. you to disappear at all. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Melina, for coming in to Thank chat you. with us. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. 
We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>